Good morning. The reading is taken from 1 John chapter 5, starting at verse 4, and it can be found on page 870 in the Blue Bible. That's 1 John chapter 5, starting at verse 4b. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar, because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, I am not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. This is God's word. I want to say a special thank you to the music team. Um, They do work hard for us, but my, how they bless us. Aren't we thankful? And uh, then secondly, just to give you a little bit of a picture as to where we're going, this is obviously our last study in the first letter of John, but uh, John wrote two more letters immediately following this one, one to a church, one particular church, and another one to an individual and uh, I'm going to be speaking on those for the next two Sunday mornings and then we'll move on to new territory. But uh, will you please keep your Bible open at the passage that Olivia read for us and I'm going to ask for God's help that we should understand it. Shall we pray? 
Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for your presence and for all that it means for us to know that either in the darkness or the light you are with us and will be with us. We thank you that you know our past and understand it perfectly, that you know our needs and are able to meet them adequately, that you know our destiny and are able to prepare us for it perfectly. So will you come to us now and speak to us by your Spirit through your Word, that each of us may be conscious that we are listening not to the voice of a man, but to the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, calling us to follow him today and always. Amen. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Uh, It's the question that Pilate asks uh, immediately before he hands Jesus over to be crucified. Uh, Matthew and Mark both record that question for us in their Gospels because although Pilate didn't know it at the time, it's actually the most important question in the world. Uh, Although the West, of course, continues to drift further and further away from its Christian roots, still today I think most people find themselves coming face to face with this question at some time or other. Uh, It might perhaps be in conversation with a Christian friend, or it might be as we think about the, the violent persecution of Christians in the third world, or it might even be in a service like this. Sooner or later, we find ourselves asking, what shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Christ. I guess the most uh, common answer today to that question probably is, well, quite frankly, I don't really know. Uh, That is the response of the agnostic. And it's a fashionable answer, of course, because it reflects the spirit of the age. Uh, Intellectually, the agnostic is uneasy and sceptical about certainties. Um, Interestingly, the the word agnostic comes directly from the Greek and it means literally not knowing. And it's an attractive position because it keeps your options open and leaves you not having to make a commitment. But when it comes to life's ultimate questions, uh, questions like, who am I? Why am I here? What happens when I die? The message of the New Testament is that we really can know the answer. It's not guesswork. uh, It's not wishful thinking. We can know. So, for example, just look with me, if you will, at verse 13 in the passage that Olivia read for us a moment ago. Uh, Regulars know that this is the theme of the whole letter, Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God 
so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, I guess we've, we've probably looked at this verse so often that it's easy to miss the obvious point. As far as John is concerned, knowing that you have eternal life, actually being certain about it, is normal Christian experience. Being hesitant or uncertain or even anxious about it is not normal. And how can we know that we really do have eternal life, that death is not actually the end? Answer, by believing. The only way we can know for sure is by trusting in Jesus and all that he's done for us on the cross. Now, I realise that before we go any further, we actually need to pause and think rather carefully about this. Because the Bible always says that it is by believing that we know. Now the problem is, that's not the way that you and I have been trained to think. You and I have been trained to think that knowledge comes first, and if we find the knowledge satisfactory, well then, faith or trust might perhaps follow later. But the Bible says the opposite. The Bible says belief leads to knowledge. Now why? Well, it's because you see that real Christian experience is not simply knowledge about God. No, real Christian experience is an encounter with God. It's coming into a relationship with the creator of the whole universe. And like any relationship, the reality of it is a combination of certain facts and experience. You have to have both. So, for example, uh, if you were to say to me after the service, Simon, how do you know that you're married? Well, um, I could take you back 30 years uh, to the day when Gillian and I made certain promises to one another. Um, I could actually show you a piece of paper that she signed and I signed and uh, other witnesses signed to prove it. In fact, two of them, by strange coincidence, are in church this morning. You can ask them about it afterwards. So there is factual evidence that we are married. But of course that's not the whole story, is it? Because the piece of paper doesn't actually tell you anything about the marriage. It doesn't tell you whether we've kept the promises that we made all those years ago. No, for the proof of that, I have to point to the relationship that we have. A relationship of love and trust, which has deepened over the years through good times and bad. That is the proof that our marriage is real. So you see, it's no good saying, is it? Well, look, here's the intellectual fact. Here's the marriage certificate. What would that actually mean if it hadn't been worked out in all the years that God has given us in being married? Now, friends, it's exactly the same in the Christian life. But by nature, we don't like it. And that's because our basic problem 
is not a problem of ignorance. Because if it were, then knowledge would be sufficient to save us. Now, our basic problem is rebellion. And if you and I are going to enjoy a relationship with God, then our need is not merely intellectual understanding, it's moral change. It's a change in the very depths of our being that leads to a transformed lifestyle. Now, for that reason, you see, when it comes to being a Christian, mere head knowledge is never enough. Yes, you've got to have your mind clear about the facts that God has entered our world in the person of Jesus, that he's borne our sins in his death upon the cross, that he's been raised from the dead, and here's the interesting bit, and he offers eternal life to who? To everyone who intellectually accepts it? Does the Bible say that? No. It's to everyone who puts their faith in him. That is, to everyone who trusts him and lives their lives on that basis. So real Christianity starts in the mind and translates always into the life. It is always both. So let's keep that in the back of our minds and let's come back to Pilate's terrific question. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And to help us answer that question, John points to two indispensable realities of true Christianity. So, much to your relief, only two headings this morning. Uh, First, in verses 6 to 12, we have the object of Christian faith. The object of Christian faith. And then in verses 13 to 20, John describes the experience of Christian faith. So, firstly then, the object of Christian faith. Now, the object of Christian faith, listen to this carefully is the revelation of God in his Son, Jesus Christ. It is the belief that the the infinite holy God, the creator of absolutely everything, including you and me, entered our world as a human being. And he came to do certain things so that we might know him and enjoy him forever. But of course the great question is, well, how do we know that it's true? How do we know that this revelation of the eternal God in Jesus Christ is true and reliable? It's a very important question, and so John calls three expert witnesses to testify. Come with me to verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three 
are in agreement. Now I realise that uh, the language is actually rather obscure here. Um, I imagine that John expected his first readers to know exactly what he meant, so he didn't have to decode it. But of course it's not immediately obvious to us. And over the years there's been considerable debate as to what John means by the water and the blood. Uh, So one interpretation is that John is referring to to the sacraments, uh, to the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. But that can't possibly be right because nowhere in ancient literature is blood by itself shorthand for Holy Communion. And it's also irrelevant to John's argument because this letter is concerned with who Jesus is rather than how he makes himself known in the sacraments of the church. So another suggestion is that this is a reference to the account of the death of Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 19. Uh, You may remember from that account that as Jesus was hanging lifeless on the cross, uh, one of the soldiers came forward with a spear and he jabbed it, didn't he, into his side to make sure he was dead. And the scripture says that that brought a sudden flow of blood and water. Now that's possible, but again, I don't think it quite fits. For a start, in John 19, the order is blood and water, not water and blood. But more compelling is the fact that in our passage, John talks about the water and blood as two separate witnesses. Apparently, they each have something slightly different to say to us. So I think on balance that the traditional interpretation is correct. That water refers to the baptism of Jesus. That was the great event, you remember, that marked the beginning of his ministry. When a voice came from heaven, Mark chapter 1, saying, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And you see, by taking us back to that event, John's reminding us that the Jesus who was baptised was already the Son of God. How do we know? Well, because God says so. The blood then is the second witness and it's pointing to the death of Jesus on the cross. Now, please notice, will you, that although these are separate witnesses, John links these two events. Verse 6b. Jesus did not come by water only, but by water and blood. Now, I've scoured all of the commentators on this, and nearly all of them say that by putting it like that, John is making the point that the Jesus who died on the cross was the same Jesus whom God identified as his son at his baptism. The man on the cross was the son of God, God incarnate, God in the flesh. 
And then the, the testimony of these first two witnesses is corroborated by a third, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth. Now, I guess this could be uh, a reference to the Spirit's testimony to Jesus through the Holy Scriptures, which are inspired by the Spirit. But, you know, the more I think about it, the more I'm persuaded that John has got one particular incident in mind. So, to wake you up, keep a finger in 1 John 5, turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, page 749. John's Gospel, chapter 1, page 749. Now this is something absolutely unique. You won't find this anywhere else in the New Testament. And it's the testimony of John the Baptist about the identity of Jesus. John 1, and we'll pick it up at verse 32. Are you all there? Good. Verse 32. Then John, that is the Baptist, gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. Now fasten your seatbelts because this is where it gets really interesting. Verse 33, I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptise with water, who was that? It was God. He told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Can you see? The Spirit came down on Jesus at his baptism to reveal his identity. It was the testimony of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist was there, he saw what happened, and he knew precisely what it meant. It meant that Jesus is the Son of God. Now come back please to 1 John, because the question now surely has to be, what are you and I to make of the testimony of these three witnesses? Why should we believe them? Actually, John's argument is disturbingly simple. Look at verse 9. He says, We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he's given about his Son. Now, that is so simple, isn't it? It's so straightforward. You can't possibly misunderstand him. What's he saying? He's saying, look, We accept the testimony of human beings every single day of our lives. If we didn't, the the legal profession would collapse overnight. Uh, We couldn't sign a contract or pay a bill or a thousand other things that are part of our normal everyday lives. Well then, says John, how can we not accept God's testimony, which is infinitely more reliable? The Spirit the water and the blood, all agree the man on the cross was the Son of God, God incarnate. And if we believe God's testimony, if we take it seriously and act on it, well then, verse 10, we're given an internal assurance 
that what we have believed is trustworthy and we're given eternal life as a free gift. But if we don't believe God's testimony about Jesus, John says that what we're actually doing is calling God a liar. Now, let's pause for a moment. What does all of this mean for you and me this morning? Let me try and give you an illustration. Uh, I don't know if you're keeping up with the amount of piracy which is taking place on the high seas almost every week. A few years ago, Tom Hanks made a rather marvellous film about it, didn't he? I think it was called Captain Phillips. But it seems that what often happens these days is that pirates manage to get on board the ship, but then they lose the bid to actually take control. Uh, The captain and the crew are generally far better prepared these days than they were a decade or so ago. And more often than not, they manage to overpower the pirates before they can take control of the ship. But they've also learned that there's no point in holding on to the uh, pirates and taking them to port for trial because they're hardly ever prosecuted. I understand that from the figures that apparently only one in ten pirates that are caught are ever brought to justice. So, what captains are doing with pirates these days is that instead of uh, inviting them to walk the plank as they might have done a couple of centuries ago, no, what they do is they put them into a little inflatable raft and then they cast them off in the middle of the ocean. They have no navigational equipment, no food, no water. Most of them simply disappear. So that apparently is how we're getting rid of pirates on the high seas today. We don't push them overboard. No, we we push them off in a tiny inflatable and we leave them to their fate. Now friends, will you please contrast that with what God does for us. You see, we foolishly attempt to oppose him, to rebel against him, to assume control of our lives and to leave him right out of the picture. Now what does God do? Instead of casting us adrift to disappear forever, he actually does the opposite. First of all, he he changes our inclination. He he changes our heart. It's what we call the new birth. And then he he welcomes us right into the very centre of his purposes for the whole universe. He puts us, as it were, right in the middle of his ship. And although the voyage may be at times rather slow and often rather painful, he takes us as his new, dearly loved people all the way home. Now, that's what we mean as Christians when we talk about the mercy and the grace of God. In his mercy, when we trust in Jesus... God doesn't give us what we do deserve, 
which is quite frankly to be cast adrift in a vast ocean never to be heard of again. He doesn't do that. But that isn't all. Because in his grace, he actually gives us what we don't deserve. Which is to keep us safe and secure on the ship of his salvation. And the name of that ship is Jesus Christ. And this, of course, is the testimony of the three star witnesses in 1 John 5. The water, the blood and the spirit. It's right there in verse 11. Have a look at it. What is their testimony? This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. You see, that's why Pilate's question is actually, finally, the most important question that any of us will ever have to answer. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Will I trust him, submitting to his gracious rule in my life, and then receive the most precious gift that, frankly, anybody can ever receive, the gift of eternal life? Or am I simply going to ignore him? So, there we have the the object of Christian faith. Let's move on briefly and consider the experience of Christian faith in verses 13 to 21. Now, in these verses, what John's doing is he's bringing all of the threads of his letter together. So remember, will you, that he's writing to Christians under pressure. Uh, The assurance of these faithful men and women has been badly shaken by the behaviour of some high-profile members of the church who walked out. Now, these people were claiming that they'd found something rather better than the Christianity taught by the apostles, and they were looking down their rather long noses at the Christians left behind. And so the Apostle John wants to close out his letter on a real high so that uh, after the letter had been read out in church on Sunday morning, which is what happened in those days, people would say after the service over coffee, well, yes, being a Christian, belonging to Jesus Christ really is the best thing in the whole wide world. And so John ends his letter by pointing to several signs that our relationship with God is a real one. These are things that every Christian should experience now, things which we didn't actually have before the new birth, but they're things which give us tremendous confidence for the future. The first is a new assurance in prayer. A new assurance in prayer. Verse 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. You see, for the Christian, prayer is an area of confidence 
because Jesus is our advocate in heaven. John told us all about that back in chapter 2. Jesus opens the way for us into the Father's presence. And here John says two startling things about this privilege. The first is that when we pray, God hears us, verse 14. And the second is that he also answers, verse 15. Incidentally, that word confidence is an interesting word. Literally, it means freedom of speech. It means that when we pray, our conversation with God is not to be merely reciting a few favourite prayers that we learned in childhood. No, no. It is to be the same kind of uninhibited, open and relaxed conversation that any child would have with their earthly father. That also means that there should be an attitude of reverence and submission. But the message here is that when we approach God, he delights to listen in the same way as an earthly parent and he loves to answer as well. Now it is true that John adds that we are to pray according to his will. Now don't get fussed about that. It's not a petty restriction. It simply recognises the reality that God's will is perfect and mine isn't. That he has perfect knowledge of all the other factors that have a bearing on my requests and I don't. As you know perfectly well, but elsewhere in the New Testament, we're told that in all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. So, my dear friends, we can and should pray for everything that God has revealed concerning his will and we should pray with great confidence. As I've been preparing these talks, i found that far and away the best commentary on 1 John is written by David Jackman. If you want more details, you can ask me afterwards. David also happens to be a very good friend of ours. And he tells of a time when, as a young man, he was first thinking about going to Bible college. But uh, he had no money, he was newly married, and they just had their first child. He was unsure whether this was actually God's will for his life. And so he prayed, and he said to the Lord, Lord, if you want me to do this, won't you give me a sign? And uh, the very next week he was travelling home from work on the train and a, a man was sitting opposite him reading the newspaper. Nobody was talking to anybody in the carriage. That's what happens on the trains in England, by the way. Uh, nobody talks to one another. They just read the newspaper. But after a while, this man leaned forward and he said to David, were you the young man that preached in such and such a church three weeks ago? And uh, David looked rather surprised. He said, well, actually, yes, I was. And the man said, I'm so pleased to meet you. Because I found that what you said really helped me. Have you ever thought about getting trained for the ministry? And David said, well, you know, it's complicated. Um, I'm newly married, I've got a child, I haven't got the money to pay for my fees. And the man nodded and the conversation ended. And about three stops further on, that obviously reached the man's destination and he got up and he handed David his business card and he said, look, I'd like to pay your first year's college fees and he got off the train. 
Almighty God, who flung stars into space, is interested in even the most tiny details of your life and mine. But there's something uh, else that's really rather wonderful here in verse 16. And it's a wonderful incentive to pray for other Christians. I've never noticed this before. Just put your nose on it, will you? The first half of verse 16. If anyone sees his brother, a brother is a Christian. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. Now that is a wonderful, wonderful promise. See, John's being very realistic, isn't he? He's saying that in every local church there will be times when a brother or sister falls into sin. And the first half of verse 16 is saying that when we see that happening, it is both our privilege and our responsibility to pray for them. And the promise is that when we do, they will be restored to enjoy the full fellowship with God that every sin disrupts. Great promise that, isn't it? Why we all need to be praying for one another. Pray for me. But sometimes, sadly, it is more complicated. Look at the second half of verse 16. But there is a sin that leads to death and I'm not saying he should pray about that. Now what's he talking about? Well remember the context, will you? These Christians have seen people leaving the church, members of the church leaving it. Presumably they'd prayed that they might be forgiven and restored and maybe some of them had but most likely many hadn't. Now that might be because they have committed the sin that leads to death, meaning eternal death. Now what is that? What is that sin? Well, it must be the sin that shuts you out of God's eternal kingdom forever. And the only sin that does that is turning your back on the only means of forgiveness, by rejecting Christ and the cross. Now, my dear friends, we do need to be absolutely clear about this. He's not describing a particular sin that is unforgivable. It's not that. No, the sin that he's talking about leads to death. Why? Because it rejects the only way to life. Do you see? Remember, the troublemakers that were in John's churches were saying, well, you know, quite frankly, Jesus isn't enough. Now, that sin will inevitably lead to death, the spiritual death of being separated from God. It's unforgivable because it refuses to accept the only way of forgiveness. And that's why John says, you don't need to pray for it. Now I should add, please note, he's not commanding us not to pray for people in that situation. Because of course, we don't actually know, do we, 
when people's hearts are finally and permanently hardened against the gospel. We don't know when that moment occurs. But I think what he is saying is that there may be a point when that does happen. And when it does, our prayers won't actually change it. So there's the first sign that our relationship with God is real. We have a new assurance in prayer. Well, John spends uh, less time on the other signs. I'm only going to mention two of them briefly because time won't permit me to say more. The second sign that our relationship with God is real is a new attitude to sin. We have a new assurance in prayer. We have a new attitude to sin. Verse 18. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin, The one who was born of God, that's Jesus, keeps him safe and the evil one cannot harm him. You you see, he's saying that the Christian experiences a fundamental change of lifestyle. He's not saying that we're sinless. Rather, the idea, I think, is that we should sin less. But we certainly no longer sin in the way that we did before we turned to Christ. And that is proof of the reality of the gospel in our lives. The evil one is constantly trying to trip us up, but we're defended by one who is stronger, the Lord Jesus, and he is constantly at work in us by his Holy Spirit. I want to say to us this morning that this is marvellously encouraging. Because if you can see some progress, some growth in godliness, well, that's evidence that you've been born of God. That God is protecting you. And that Satan cannot finally take you back under his power. It's good news, isn't it? And the third and last sign that our relationship with God is real is a new awareness of truth. A new awareness of truth. Now friends, it's the last sign because it's actually the most important. John puts it right at the very end of his letter, rather like we do when we're sending somebody an email. The thing we want them to remember is right at the very end. And that's what John's done here. Verse 20. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, friends, This is actually the climax of the whole letter. And what he's saying is that Jesus has given the Christian a spiritual and intellectual ability to grasp truth that he didn't have before. It is as if the the, the curtain of reality has been drawn back and suddenly 
for the first time, we see Jesus for who he really is. The one true God. And we realise that we've been given the awesome privilege of knowing him personally. Of living in the closest possible relationship with him. And that's why you see John ends with those extraordinary words in verse 21. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, of course, John isn't there thinking of tiny little images carved out of wood or stone. No, he's thinking of any picture of Jesus, any description of Jesus that is different from the picture preserved by the apostles in the New Testament. In John's day, it was Jesus without a cross. And that myth, of course, is still around today. But there are plenty of other Jesus substitutes. And John's point that all, is that all false teaching about Jesus is an idol. And the reason that idols are so deadly so very, very dangerous is because in the end they take you away from salvation. So don't be taken in. We must hold on tight to the Jesus we find in Holy Scripture. My dear friends, keep yourselves from idols. Shall we pray? Let's have a moment of quiet, I think, in case somebody here wants to do business with God in the quietness of their hearts. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Our loving Heavenly Father, please open our eyes to see that this is the most important question in the world, that everything that really matters depends on how we answer it. Pilate rejected Jesus sending him to the cross. But Father, you have given us rock-solid testimony that Jesus is your Son from before the foundation of the world and that when we trust him and live our lives on that basis, we do have eternal life. Father, please give us grace to worship and adore the Jesus of Holy Scripture. Give us discernment to recognise the Jesus substitutes that are all around us. And help us always to remember that it stands written, 
Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Thank you, Father. Amen.